going to start Galatians. And uh, it derives its title from the region in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, as we've said, where the churches, plural there, key point addressed, were located. And it's the only one of Paul's epistles that is specifically designated addressed to the plural churches, more than one. The others are all written to a church. And we really don't have any reason to question the internal claims that Paul was its author. Uh, he was born in Tarsus, which actually is a city in the province of Cilicia, which isn't very far from Galatia. And under the famous rabbi, uh, I can't pronounce his name very well most of the time, Gamaliel, Paul, under his his guidance, Paul received a thorough training in the Old Testament scriptures and in the rabbinic Jerusalem or the um, traditions of Jerusalem. So he sat under the best, right, and was educated under him. In a, a member of the ultra orthodox sect of the Pharisees, he was one of the of the first centuries. Uh, rising stars within Judaism. He was the guy. You know, we have those guys today. We all look at them today. John and I were talking uh, before we started here about Abner Chow. You know, he's one of those guys. So, who's he? Well, you know, he's the rising star in, in our way of, uh, in our doctrine, our theology, and the, the, the things that we do. And he really is. You know, he's one of those guys. And when you look at... Um, uh, you look at our world, you know, um, of, of people that we all follow, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are old and some of them have died recently, right? So we need some rising stars. And it's interesting to me, speaking of that, that a lot of, um, a lot of the, uh, good seminaries, um, are trying diligently to produce writers today because of the guys that we all love and follow they're getting old and and dying and they're not going to be writing anymore then what are we going to do right so it's interesting to see these young rising stars and and paul was one of those right so the course of his life took a sudden startling turn however as we know with his conversion on the uh on his way to from uh way to damascus to persecute christians when he was confronted by the risen, glorified Christ, right? What a dramatic encounter that turned his life upside down. Christianity's chief persecutor to its greatest missionary, right? I mean, think about that. But, you know, think of your own testimony as well, right? You don't have to have been a persecutor of the faith. You don't have to have been a wild renegade to say that, well, I don't have a testimony like that. If you've really been born again, you can say, you know what? Something happened. You know, I remember one time this guy or this this family called me to meet with their son. I'd been a believer about five years and had taken a liking to working with uh, people that struggled with addictions. And, and uh, so this kid had to do some community service. And so I picked him up on a Saturday morning and Drove um, uh, to this all day long, you know, and he was just as hard as a brick and wasn't willing to hear any of it. And he just kept asking all these questions. And you know what? My final comeback to him was, you know, I don't really know what happened to me. All I know is I was blind and now I see, right? And and that that's it, right, for all of us. But here was Paul. He was this guy that was kind of on the edge, if you will, and then he becomes the greatest missionary. And and that statement caused me to go back and look in the back of my Bible. I encourage you to do it this afternoon. Look at his journeys, you know, and he wasn't driving around. I was just talking to somebody before we started here about a week from tomorrow. I'm headed to Peru, and we were talking about... Um, going down there, and, and he's thinking about going later this year and or next year. And um, um, but he had a, a shortened time period, and I said, "Well, the problem is it takes three days to get there, you know, and that's in vehicle, you know, airplane and vehicle." Well, Paul didn't have an airplane or a vehicle to ride in, you know, and so when you look at that on the map, I mean, that was grueling you know and he didn't quit you know he didn't quit he kept persevering 
So, you know, his, his, he, he had these, those three journeys. He went to Rome and he turned Christianity from a faith that included only a tiny little group of Palestinian Jews into an empire that was just a phenomenon, right? That just spread and is doing what? Still spreading today, right? So Galatians is one of the 13 inspired letters. What do we mean when we say inspired letters? I mean, I, I, I write letters. I write emails, I guess I should say. But what, what's an inspired letter? God breathed. God breathed. And what does that mean? Yeah, he's right, guiding, right? Yeah. You know, and so Paul's writings were inspired, and he addressed uh, the Gentile congregations and his, his uh, fellow workers as well. So, you know, some of his letters are to people, his fellow workers. Some of his letters were to congregations. In chapter 2, he described his visit to the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, so he must have written his letter after that, and that took place in A.D. 49. So Galatians is most likely written after 49. And, and he opens, interestingly, uh, with an argument rather than a, a salutation. Look at verse 1 of Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So the, the name of the author with his credentials coming first was actually customary in ancient letters. And we don't do it that way, do we? We sign off at the end. Of course, nowadays, again, um, if you get a letter in the mail, you know, the top left corner of the envelope, you know who it's from. And uh, sometimes, however, it just has the address and you got to know them pretty well to... Uh, to know who it's from if, if they don't put their name there. But, you know, the emails we can see in our inbox when it comes, who it's from before we even open it, even though we do sign off on our emails. But um, hopefully, um, I mean, how many of y'all read every email you get? <laughs> Gail said she does. At work? Yeah. I mean, I get, I don't know how I get, I did spend 20 minutes the other day unsubscribing from a bunch but um you know not a lot but a bunch um and and they just find other ways to get to you but you can tell who they're from you just get rid of them so kind of like the the old mail one if it has that if it's from the irs you just pitch it right you don't open it but until you get my age then you're waiting with anticipation did i get my check you know what? Not to spoil it for the young folks, but I, I was so counting on that thing coming in August, you know, when my birthday was. Well, just like, guess what? There aren't any government employees in here, are there? Um, <laughs> it doesn't come a month, behind, a month behind. Doesn't come till September. It's like, what? You know, 53 years of working and doesn't come for a month late. If I tried paying a month late, they'd be on me. But anyway. <laughs> so the name of the author with his credentials coming first, it was customary then. And Paul identifies himself as an apostle sent by God rather than men. And again, the, the term apostle had a very specific meaning. That's key for us today. And it denotes the official spokesman for, for Jesus Christ, especially his original 12. You know, there are, have any of y'all met an apostle today, somebody that claims that? They're out there. Yeah. You know, they are. There's a church here in Holly Springs that, um, that it says on their sign, instead of pastor, it says apostle, and I can't remember the guy's name. And the song director is a, a, a northern psalmist, isn't he? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, but these guys were called, here's the key, the difference, called and commissioned by Christ himself to teach on his behalf. And we see that in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Mark. And apparently now, you know, you could start to put together, well, how was Paul, you know, and some critics were quick to point out that Paul was not one of the original 12, right? He was a latecomer. And they claimed that since he was a latecomer, that he wasn't commissioned by Christ himself. Therefore, he was only at best a second-rate 
apostle. And then that means that his gospel was just hearsay, right? And, and if this is what people were saying about Paul, then it's, it's easy, I guess, for us to see why he dispensed with the customary pleasantries of opening this letter and started his letter by defending his credentials. And he wasn't merely being defensive. He understood that his opponents were making a personal attack in order to advance, key point here, a theological error, right? And that's what we got to keep in mind. That's what he's defending, a theological error. They were devaluing uh, Paul and, and they were belittling his gospel, right? If they could show to everybody in the churches there that he, that, that he was an imposter rather than an apostle, they could discredit this message that he had of you're saved by grace alone. You know, he wasn't, Paul wasn't defending himself as much as he was defending the independence of his apostleship in order to defend the gospel. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Paul when you study his life. He didn't care about himself. He cared about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, right? When I counsel people that I'm not sure where they're at when I had my ministry program going and we had these guys living with us for six months, the vast, vast majority of the people that I had in the program came to me through churches. They weren't the under the bridge attic. They they were people from churches just like ours that had fallen into the sin of addiction. So they'd been churched, you know, but it's amazing when I would talk to them and, and we would use the word gospel, you know, and and then I would kind of dive a little into that little word because if you'd have said that to me before I was a believer, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. You know, I mean, that's a weird word for today, gospel, you know, with the gospel truth, we might say in a, in a phrase, you know. So I was, what is the gospel? You know, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Great question. So what does it mean? This was, um, uh, he wrote this after that. Yeah, because that would have been in, in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. So, yeah, I think I'll have to look at it. So what does the word gospel mean? Word of God. Word of God. All right, take it further. What, what's the word of God? Why do I need the gospel? <laughs> All right. It changes up your heart of stone to heart of flesh. Okay, and it changes your want to. It gives you new water. That's right. All of those are true. I'm looking for something else. Gospel means what? It means the good news, right? So, what's the good news? Take that a step further. All of those things, right? The good news that I can have forgiveness of my sins, right? And when it came to the good news about salvation by grace through faith, Paul absolutely refused to budge. He wasn't coming off of it. This is it. I'm sticking to it and you can't change my mind. So much so that what happened to him, right? When you start reading his, you know, he was beat, stoned, shipwrecked, bit by a snake, you know, all these other uh, things, right? So the truth is that Paul was not sent from men. He was an apostle by what? The will of God, right? Look at chapter 1 down at uh, verse 15 and 16. Get my Bible open here. One fifteen says, um, But when he who had sent me set me apart before I was born. When? Before I was born, right? And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. So God had set him apart from birth. God had called him by grace and revealed Jesus Christ to him. That's an amazing thing. I mean, just think for a minute um, about your life personally. I was 38 when God saved me, and I won't give my testimony because you all probably kick me out from being an elder and make me leave the church if you, if you, 
I mean, I was, I was horrible, a horrible human being. But everybody was apart from Christ, right? But it's, I think it good to realize, to reflect on the fact that even though we were that way, um, that, that, that God did this before I was even born, set me apart before I was even born, right? That's what we call grace, is it not? Now, like I said a minute ago, you don't have to have been as bad and evil and vile and wicked as I was. You could be the, the, the Miss Goody two-shoes your whole life, but until you come to know Christ as your Savior, your end point is the same, right? doesn't matter. I remember years and years ago taking some kids on a mission trip, and one of the young people shared their testimony, and it was kind of like mine. And this other girl said, well, gosh, you know, I don't, I don't have a testimony like that. I, I, I was raised in the church with a godly family, and I've been in church. I can't remember not being in church, you know. And, and, but then she kind of kept going on, and I said, okay, stop for a second. And we read the story of the prodigal, right? Well, that older brother, guess what? I don't know if you all have ever read uh, John MacArthur's book or heard his sermons on A Tale of Two Sons. But that guy was in more trouble than the prodigal, right? Because the prodigal, what happened? He came back, and the other guy stayed the whole time. He was the goody two-shoes that stayed, and and he was condemned, right? So don't ever think just because you didn't walk a wicked path that that you uh, don't have a testimony, right? So <clears throat> Paul realized that he was set apart from birth, so his commission was neither originated nor mediated by mere human beings. And Paul's opponent said that his gospel was not God's word to man, but man's word about God, right? That, that, I think that's so crucial. And so Paul right away explains where his Christianity came from. It's, it came straight from the mouth of Christ himself. He was an apostle, not from men, verse 1 tells us, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. He's saying that his authority was not human, but divine. That makes Paul's message God's message about salvation from sin, right? And anyone who sets Paul's apostolic teaching aside is actually setting aside the gospel truth of Jesus Christ himself. So... A little background continued. In his day, the word Galatia had actually two distinct meanings. In a strict sense, Galatia was that region of, of Central Asia Minor inhabited by this whole group called the Galatians. They were Celtic people who had migrated to the region from Gaul, which was modern-day France, in the 3rd century B.C. That's interesting to me, you know, that people were moving around like that, you know, uh, in 3 B.C. The, well, the Romans conquered uh, the Galatians in 189 B.C., followed by, followed, and, but allowed them to have some measure of independence until 25 B.C. when Galatia, that region, actually became a Roman province. And um, again, if you just look at the geography there, it's mind-boggling to me how, how that stuff spread, you know, how, how the Roman government spread like that. And in a political sense, Galatia came to describe the entire Roman province, not merely this uh, region inhabited by the ethnic Galatians, if you will. So there's some discussion about this, and those of you that have studied New Testament theology will know that there's you know, this northern Galatian theory and the southern Galatian theory, and did Paul write to one of them, to both of them? And, and I believe uh, through my study that it was written to the south, the southern Galatian area. And, and you know what? If you want to debate that, then you can go read all the commentaries and come up with your own conclusion. But at the end of the day, I don't know that it really matters, right? We just know that he wrote it. And, and what matters is that Paul knew to whom he was writing. And these people who received the letter were in no doubt whatsoever as to where it was coming from. It was coming from Paul. He founded these churches in, in the southern Galatian cities of Antioch. We can read this in Acts 13 and 14. He, he founded them in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And these cities, although within Roman, the Roman province of Galatia, were not 
in the in the overall ethnic region of Galatia. Um, so Paul wrote Galatians to counter specific purpose false Judaizing teachers who were undermining the central New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. And I mean that is so huge for us to realize, right? That that he he wrote knowing that he would be accused. Now think about this. If you're going to write a letter to somebody, a whole group of people, and you know that you're going to be accused, you would probably, at least I would, start to second guess. Should I even do this, right? Uh, he knew that he would be accused of, of being against the law, of what's called antinomianism, against the law, right? He'd be accused for arguing that man was justified apart from keeping the law. So the Judaizers were ignoring the express decree of the Jerusalem Council. They spread their dangerous teaching so that the Gentiles, or that the Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and submit to all of the Mosaic law before they can become Christians. So now does that start to ring a bell maybe of some things that you heard, you know, maybe before Christ about what it is to, to be saved, what it is to be born again, what it is to be a Christian and what you have to do. So Paul, he was actually shocked by the, by the openness to, to, uh, to the, to the heresy because he, he had gone to these churches, you know, and then he's gone and then they fall into this, you know, that would really, I'm sure it hurt him, you know, to some degree to know, like, how could you guys do that? So he wrote this letter to defend justification by faith and to warn the churches of the consequences of abandoning this essential doctrine. To be specific, these Judaizers wanted the Gentile believers to be circumcised. Their theology, their, their theology you can read in Acts 15, uh, says some men, possibly the very men who caused trouble in Galatia, went down from Judea and Antioch and they were teaching, Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wow. Think about that. Not surprisingly, this teaching was especially popular among believers who were former Pharisees. Some Pharisees had gotten saved, and now they're hearing this. Ooh, see, we did have something going. The church, I believe, has always been recovering or been full of recovering Pharisees who want to do what? What does a Pharisee want to do? What do you think? They want to add human effort to God's grace. You got to fill in the blank, right? So before we jump into the letter, though, let me ask you, what idea is the most fundamental to us as Americans in our sense of ourselves as individuals and as a nation? What do you think? One word. Freedom. Freedom. That's it, right? Freedom. The central term in our political vocabulary, freedom or liberty, if you will, with which it is almost always used interchangeably, is deeply embedded in the record of our history, right? And the language of everyday life. I read a book in 2015, I'd highly recommend, if you hadn't read it, called Operation Thunderbolt. I know Darby read it a couple of years ago as well. And it, it's a detailed story that occurred on June 27th in 1976. I was in the military in Europe when this happened. And this is when a group of Arab and German terrorists hijacked an Air France Flight 139 en route from Tel Aviv to Paris. Remember? You know, we don't hear about that kind of stuff as much anymore. But maybe we will with these new terrorist groups, you know, not new, but these, as they're acting out now. This plane was diverted to Entebbe, uh, in the airport in Entebbe in Uganda, where the terrorists demanded the, re- the release of 53 freedom fighters in Israel, Kenya, and European jails in return for the safe release of the 253 passages and crews. So 53 for 253, right? Well, the book, it, it's, an, it's an absolutely en- enthralling minute by minute retelling of the hijack and the dramatic rescue 
And I didn't know this until this past year when I read another book, uh, or this year, this summer, uh, I read another book, and a very a f- famous guy was was one of the only, very few killed, but one of the most famous guys killed. Does anybody know who, who it was? Whose brother? It was Netanyahu. B.B. Netanyahu, is the, it was his brother. Yeah, his brother was killed. He was one of the commanders there. So I promise you, though, of, of the others, if you were to interview any of these that were rescued, none of them would say that, that they desired to go back and be held captive on that plane, right, rather than enjoy the freedom that they were given. It's absolutely ridiculous to think of someone who's been in bondage and now freed wanting to go back into into bondage, right? It sounds simplistic to say it, but it's very significant that people have to escape out of uh, captivity. They're not, once they do, they're not clamoring to go back under bondage. They're not longing to get go back into captivity. Why? Right? Why? Why, if you've been freed, you know, why? Well, I think it's simple, because outside of captivity, there is freedom, right? The kind of freedom that people like you and I were born into. I mean, after all, it's the old American way, right? We'll fight for our freedom. Hopefully, we can still say that. Sometimes I wonder. But anyway, the the book of Galatians is a letter of liberation. So I'd like to think of it as that Operation Thunderbolt, right? It's declaring to all who read it, freedom from bondage. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from the bondage of sin and religious legalism. I remember uh, hearing that word legalism or legalist a lot when I was first saved. Had no idea what it meant. And so I asked a, a pastor, a guy that was discipling me, I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, the, the easiest way for me to describe it is adding to God's word. So think about it like that, you know. And, that, man, that stuck with me. Uh, you know, and for instance, you know, um, or he gave me the first example of it was uh, was Eve uh, and Satan. You know, of, of did God really say? You, you know, that was the adding, right? So freedom uh, from the bondage of religious legalism. So it'll help us understand why Paul wrote this letter by looking a little further at exactly what was going on in these churches. Again, as I said, they were they were. Uh, uh, Judaizers that had come in and through legalism they stole the people's freedom in Christ. They denied Paul's message that salvation and maturity were 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 through grace by simple faith in Christ. And they they actually attacked Paul personally as well, seeking to undercut his authority and his doctrine. And sadly, sadly, many Galatian believers began believing these false teachers. You know, and, and we can see that happen today, too, in churches, right? They submitted to circumcision and other Old Testament laws to win God's approval, gain eternal life, and mature in Christ. So with all the external regulations, they felt like slaves as they tried to meticulously obey the law. And because of that, guess what? They were no longer free in Christ, Think about that. They were now no longer free in Christ because they were bound to this law. But then to the rescue comes Paul, the liberator, right? He liberates them. His bold defense of grace restored the Galatians and saved the early church from a cultic division. And because... The message of Galatians frees Christians from the opposition of legalism. It's been called the Magna Carta of Christianity. Martin Luther, right, the father of the Reformation, loved Galatians and considered it the best of all the books in the Bible. This was Luther's best. He even compared his love for this book with his love for his wife, Catherine. Think about that, right? Luther said, quote, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Wow, right? That's pretty pretty, uh, loving for that, right? 
What, what do you do? Let me ask you. What do you do when you've made a mess of things? Where do you go when you've really blown it, right? Where do you turn when you just ripped your kid apart for something they did with harsh words? What do you do when you just ripped your spouse apart with harsh words? With, I guess, for that way, you could say, with sheer stupidity, right? When you've driven a wedge between friends, right? Where do you go when you've been insensitive, thoughtless, downright obnoxious? Where do you go? How do we respond when we've drifted away from the faith, compromised the gospel, or turned our back on God? Well, typically, if you think about this, when we sin, we like to hide, either in our sin or ourselves or both. I like to think about we get the turtle complex. Go in the shell, slam it shut, baby. Ain't nobody getting in here, right? This is a natural response. It's, it's hardwired into our genes, and we get it from Adam and Eve, right? When they sinned, they hid, right? Galatians, uh, Genesis 3. And humanity's been sinning ever since. I mean, hiding, sinning, yes, but hiding ever since as well. I like to think, you know, say that, uh, you know, that real tree company thinks they came out with the first camouflage, but they didn't, you know, neither did the U.S. military. The first camouflage was Adam and Eve. They made fig leaves and they climbed up in a fig, or they didn't make them. They took them and they made covering with them and they climbed up in a fig tree hiding from God, right? So, and we've been doing it ever since. So when Paul's young converts in Galatia first heard his letter of rebuke read aloud to them, they too, no doubt, wanted to run and hide. They turned their faith inside out and upside down, and now they're getting hit with it, right? That's what happens when we turn our back on grace and seek to be justified by the law. Now, through this, don't think I'm on the spectrum of uh, this, what's it called? I just drew a blank. Um, there's a modern teaching in evangelicalism today. I, it, maybe it's called the free grace movement. I'm not talking about that when I'm saying that Paul is turning this, you know, or that, that Paul's turning um, ob- obedience to Christ upside down, just like, oh, grace, you know, because we know what he wrote in. Uh, the end of Romans chapter 5, right? Well, if grace is, if it's like that, well, I'm just going to send some more to get some more, you know? And how did he follow that up with? It may it never be. Yeah, no way, Jose, right? We're not going to do that. But uh, Paul is flabbergasted by this dramatic turn of events in these folks' lives. Uh, but he's not speechless, right? He says in, in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ in our turning to a different gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Chapter 4, verse 11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Chapter 5, verse 4. You are severed from Christ who would, who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So he wasn't speechless. He, he comes after him, right? And the Galatians find themselves in this serious situation. In fact, it couldn't be more serious. And Paul knows it, and they know it also, right? But look where Paul takes them. He doesn't take them out behind the woodshed or banish them out into the doghouse for retribution. He doesn't vent his frustration with them on social media. He doesn't tweet about it, right? He takes them back to where it all began, back to grace. He takes them back to grace. So let's read the first five verses. Chapter 1, 1 through 5. It says there, um, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So look closely at verse 3. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we've read those words, no doubt, hundreds of times in in Paul's introduction to all of his letters that we just kind of fly right over them, right? Get me to the meat. Yeah, Paul says that in all of them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus. Get me to the meat. But but you know what? We need to slow down and, and really think about these vitally precious words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What he, he's saying is, you know what? You've really messed things up, but all is not lost. He takes them back to where it all began. Where did it all begin? Grace, right? Paul knows the Galatians will have a tough time going back to grace because they've lost confidence in the gospel that he originally brought them. Here's a little further explanation of what had happened. Well, for the sake of time, I'll skip over that, right? We know what has happened. We, We just read it, right? But his enthusiastic converts were now undecided, at best, of what to do. They they had developed misgivings about whether Paul had told them the whole story. Maybe he's holding out on us here a little bit and whether or not his gospel could get them where they really wanted to go spiritually. What? Here's the, and, you know, don't stone me, but what if there's more? I've, th- I've thought that, haven't you? What if there's more, right? What What if I need to be doing more to really get where I need to be? And I had a really uh, strong experience of this in Jerusalem. Uh, has anybody been to Israel? You know, if you ever, well, no, no, don't go now. But, uh, you know, if, well, we'll all be there one day. But if things calm down in the Middle East and you get to go on a tour, go on one because it is fantastic. So, But I remember going uh to the Wailing Wall there, you know, and I think one of the most astounding things to me about Israel itself is how small it all is. You know, we live in the United States, which is massively huge. You know, it just cracked me up. We were out on one of the places uh, um, uh, on Mount Carmel and Pastor Shane was teaching us and all of a sudden you heard this... And I said, what is that? You know, well, there's an Air Force base over there, you know, and they got those... I don't know what, the F-22 fighters that we gave them, you know. And I thought, well, why in the world they need an aircraft like that? They can go north to south in 2.1 seconds. And they're through with their country. There they go, you know, and they're in somebody else's airspace. But it's little. It's little there when you're observing it. So half of those trips you go out in kind of the outer wilderness areas. Then the last week you're there, you're in Jerusalem itself. And one of the places you go in the, inside the walls of the old city, and there's the Wailing Wall. And the ladies have to go over to this side, to the right facing it, and the men go to the left facing it. And before you walk in, there's a guy with a box full of the things that you put on your head. What are they called? Yamaka. And, you know, so even a Gentile outsider has to put one on to go over there and and on the men's side, you know, see, it was crowded on both sides of Jews, you know, doing their, their prayer there, wailing on the wall. But to the left, on the men's side, there was an area that was like, um, it was open to walk in, but it was enclosed on three sides. There were tables in there. There was a library in there of all these books of the law. And there was a bar mitzvah actually happening over in the corner over there, and there were People sitting at these tables uh, with these big, giant, thick books of the law, reading them and rocking and praying. And and I saw one guy, I just kind of planted myself back up against the wall and just watched for a good while. And I saw one guy reading and flipping and chanting, and he'd look up and see who was looking at him. You know, and then if he saw somebody, he'd start, you know, like this. And and, uh, you, you come out of there. And you probably don't walk um, uh, maybe from the entrance to the property here to the high school. And you're at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, right? And interestingly, if you look at um, uh, the little um, ledge above the doorway there, there's a ladder up there. And I can't remember how long that ladder's been there, 40, 50 years and it's because six different groups are in charge of that place, and they don't know who it belongs to, and you can't touch something. Anyway, 
you go inside, the, it ruins the pictures, you know, because you take this great picture. Oh, there's a ladder in there. It kind of ruined it. Some, maybe a tourist needs to jump up there and get that thing off. But, um, <laughs> yeah, get shot doing it. But anyway, we go into the church there, and the first thing right in the foyer is this. It's a replica. It's not the real one, but it's a replica of, of the tombstone of Christ. And it's, there's this table, and it's kind of like down on the ground. And there were people on the ground on their hands and knees wailing, crying. So the Jews were over here at the wall doing this to get favor with God. These people were on their hands and knees crying, weeping on this replica of a stone. And, and ladies were rubbing their hair on the stone. There were people down there with bags full of rags rubbing them on the stone so you can bring them back and sell them, you know, for the magical power that's going to now be in it. And again, I just kind of planted back and looked, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Look at the Jews out there doing that. Look at these people doing that. Hey, Tim, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, oh, no. Am I, am I doing enough to gain favor with God? And then those words grace. I'm standing in grace. I'm standing in the finished work of Christ for my salvation, not what I'm doing. Certainly, I want to be obedient and, and you know, show my love for what he's done. But that's what Paul was going through his mind with what had happened to these people. So I don't know, you know, have you ever thought maybe if maybe I fill in the blank, right? Maybe I need to Fill in the blank. They found themselves, the Galatians here, found themselves in what we might call a crisis of faith. They were ready to submit to the knife and get circumcised. Sometimes we find ourselves in similar situations, right? We embrace the gospel with great enthusiasm at first, but we found we find we find ourselves living the Christian life. Maybe it's not quite what we expected. And so as a result of that, we wrestle with wondering if there's something else I need to be doing to get me where I want to go in this life, right? This is where the Galatians were, which is why Paul's first words to them is to insist that the message of grace still stands, right? But notice he speaks not about the message, but the messenger, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why does he say that, right? Is he insecure about his credentials? I think he does it so uh, he can reassert the legitimacy of the gospel, right? Paul, if Paul finds himself that he, that he isn't legitimate, if, if he's not truly an apostle sent from God, then his message isn't legitimate either, is it? Right? So he, he, he is telling them, you know, that this really is from God. And then he also appeals that he stands with other numerous gospel workers because he says, and all the brothers who are with me. Paul was not a lone ranger. You know, if there's a, a, a renegade lone ranger, you know, pretty good indication that you want to follow that guy, right? Isolation is not part of it, right? The, the gospel Paul preaches and the gospel the Galatians first believed is the same gospel that is preached by many other people. So really, it boils down to is Paul wants to see grace unleashed on a desperate situation that these folks have found themselves in. And we can read that from Genesis to Revelation, right? The word of God is a treasure trove of grace over and over and over again, right? In fact, everything that was written in the Bible was written for us, Paul tells us in Romans fifteen four. through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's what it's all about, right? So every time we mess things up, started out talking about blowing it, we got to go back to grace by going back to the word of God, right? When we blow it, we can't neglect the scriptures, Instead of closing our Bibles, we need to open them, read them, meditate on them, dwell, on, dwell in it, right? And um, why do you think our tendency to neglect or even hide the Word of God 
is. Why is that? What do you think? Laziness. That that's definitely part of it. Um, <laughs> say that again. Being content to meander in the maze of mediocrity. That's right. It's just painful because it's it's making you face the truth and how yeah. selfish you are. It's very convicting. Yeah. Hebrews four twelve. Pardon? Public criticism. Yeah. Hebrews four twelve. Because the word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, right? Boom, stabs you, right? Cuts you. That's right. But nowhere else, it's interesting, because nowhere else will we find the very thing we need when we make a mess of things, right? There alone, in God's word, we find this message of grace, the gospel, Right. Part of what it means to go back to grace then is to go back to the Bible where the message of grace can be found. And that's where Paul wants to take them. And we see him doing that. Right. As as they move forward. So um, they they I, I think that they found the law appealing because they found themselves frustrated and fatigued with the same thing we often find frustrating and fatiguing. And here it is, the continuing presence of sin in our lives. There has to be something that can get rid of that, right? Do you realize that that we need to be rescued from the dominion of sin, right? Wouldn't it be fantastic if sin were a one-time thing, an event? Boom, there it was, I'm done, something's, it's it's done with, because there it was, I can mark that, right? But instead, sin has after-effects. It lives on, and the after effects in turn affect us, right? So there's, there's a way to break free from sin that so easily entangles, entangles us, and, and, and Paul wants to show them that, right? But it's not the path of the law, right? It's the cross of Christ. Deliverance from sin in the present evil age comes only one way, and it comes through the death of and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right up front, he says in verses 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Luther said this, quote, These two words, grace and peace, do contain in them the whole sum of Christianity. Grace containeth the remission of sins, peace a quiet and joyful conscience. But peace of conscience can never be had unless sin be first forgiven, end quote. So, with these two verses, three and four, Paul drives the Galatians back to the fundamental fact of Christ gave himself for our sins, right? The death of Christ alone explains the the presence of grace in our lives. So, When we sin, we don't need to hide to God. When we blow it badly, we don't have to run away. When we're discouraged with our lives spiritually, we shouldn't flirt with other stuff and instead go back to the cross, return to the source of grace. But how do we get there, right? How do we do that? You know, that's a pressing pressing question when I've blown it big time, right? And we've all been there. How do we get there? You know, is there any solution? Well, Look how he closes that, his salutation there. Verse 4, talking about Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that's not the typical way to address a letter, is it? But with this closure, Paul takes them and us into the very atmosphere of worship. Right. And by rehearsing what God has done for them in Christ, he invites them to voice their agreement to this great salvation with the confession. Amen. Let it be so. That's what he's saying to them. The way back to grace couldn't be simpler. All we got to do is say amen. Right. But that's not easy to do, is it? Because saying amen is or maybe the hardest thing that we've ever done. It's hard because saying amen 
we've got to think about this, is not something we simply do with our heads. Saying amen is not a, yep, I sure, I, I, I got it, sure, I understand. Amen is something we say with our hearts, right? And when we say amen, we're more than observers. We're moving from being spectators to actually being participants. Amen is our way of entering into the divine drama, taking up part, assuming our side of the story of grace called the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So until we do that, we're simply sitting in the audience, out of the, out of the action, away from the benefits of grace. So saying amen is the only entry point into the world of grace. There's no other way in, right? We, we can't find grace in any other way because grace is only given to those who have what? Faith. And the voice of faith is expressed in the word amen. Listen to this from commentator Alan Cole. He writes this. Amen. Quote, when the old-fashioned Cantonese-speaking Christian says at the end of a prayer, Shing Sam Shou Un, <laughs> with all of my heart, this is what I wish. That's what that means. With all of my heart, this is what I wish. He approaches very nearly the original Hebrew meaning of amen. So think about that when you read that word. With all of my heart, this is what, what I wish. So Galatians, it's often viewed as a letter for legalists, for those who seek to earn God's favor by their works. And in a sense, it is about that. But it's also a letter for those of us who have made a mess of our own lives, who are on the verge of apostasy, almost ready to shipwreck our faith on the brink of moral or spiritual disaster. So it begins and ends by calling wayward believers back to grace, it's perfect for prodigals, right? So it never gets tired of saying the message of grace, it still stands. The fountain of grace still flows. The way back to grace couldn't be easier. All it takes is a heartfelt amen uttered in response to all that God has done for us in Christ, right? Because we've all blown it, and if you haven't, guess what? You will. So we all need grace to get back in order to move forward in the life that Christ has called us to. So that's the introduction.